They can't stop us. Cause we're ready to fight, trying to brainwash us. But we won't let freedom die. The whole world's brainwashed. Everybody pick a team, start a riot in the streets. The whole world's brainwashed. It's us against them, it ain't you against me. Step one. Train the people only to consume. Step two, infiltrate adults with the news. Step three, indoctrinate the children through the schools and the music and the apps on the phones that they use. Step four, separate the right from the left. Step five, separate the white from the black. Step six, separate the rich from the poor. Use religion and equality to separate them more. Step seven, fabricate a problem made a lie. Step eight, put it on the news every night. Step nine, when people start to fight and divide, take control. This is called situational design. They can't stop us Cause we're ready to fight Trying to brainwash us But we won't let freedom die The whole world's brainwashed Everybody pick a team, start a riot in the streets The whole world's brainwashed It's us against them, it ain't you against me Dang, 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 dang And I think I want to take portions of that uh, that uh, fellow Jarhead pointed out a um, few seconds where he was doing these steps, steps one, step two. I think I need to, um, e I'm going to email him and ask him if I can actually use that in an intro, a new intro. So guys, it's Friday and apparently it's Friday the 13th. So you know what? We're reclaiming a lot of crap. We're, we reclaim the my body, my choice. We're going to reclaim Black Lives Matter. But what we're going to do is reclaim everything. So tonight after um, the Twitch show, we're going to raid that. Uh, damn, he was such a random find. Um, this DJ from Tampa with a mohawk. Uh, get your drinks ready. And we're just going to be partying and listening to music. Um, I'll tell you what. When I... Um, was looking for just a random raid because I was able to actually have my Twitch up while I was streaming. I was thinking to myself, oh, let me find someone new because usually the people that I had on my list are during the day, no one at night. And I saw him and I could tell you like he was doing his thing, but he had like low energy. And I was like, you know, he might not like everyone because, you know, some people don't leave politics at the door. And, you know, obviously it's us. It's America. But people are so polarized these days. We should just unite. And some people still do that stuff. Right. Um, we can still talk politics and have bashes. Right. But we should just chill and relax. Well, the Green, da the Green Dragon Tavern was where in 1776 people like break bread and stuff. So I think it was kind of badass to nominate today the green dragon tavern uh night and we should be doing that on friday nights or whatever nights we can decide to be like yo let's go party maybe we can raid some new dj so we're gonna find dj mohawk from tampa that's so awesome he had some really damn his his mix was so good um, so we could just chill and just enjoy ourselves. Like when I got in there, I was like, what? He started playing some Def Leppard and I was just like, okay, I'm here. I could not stop moving. Um, so today I thought, um, we can, since Tom McDonald so nicely talked about situational design, um, this is something that I was explaining in an older show about utilitarian totalitarianism, right? And so, I want us to kind of just look at uti uh, you, uh, utilitarianism again 
And then I'm going to explain to you the kind of warfare. See, a lot of us at some point will not be able to communicate. And it's very important to learn strategies of war and how things work um, and how to think critically. As I've said before, and many people might say, oh, you know, that's so like, look, you fear nothing. You can do everything. Right now, we need to think of how things are, right? So how do you solve a problem? There's, you know, we have a problem. Let's talk elections, right? We have a problem. We understand that we have election machines that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And there are a lot of holes. We've had a lot of infiltration in all those camps that were trying to help us, right? And so like I did in many cases throughout the past years is just sit and watch. Watch, collect information, document IPs, figure out the strategies and the methodology of them solving, tackling problems, right? And then finding remedies. And how do you do that? The way you can do that is by just accepting what you know is true, right? Now, in today's day and age, there's a lot of things that we think are true, but they aren't. But what I'm trying to explain is, rather than us look at all these things that are happening, let's focus on what the problems that we have are. So let's take that approach and see what we know is fundamentally true. Our elections are fucked, and they've been like that for a long time period. We know this for a fact now. We know that we have not had elections. I can tell you that from personal attestation that for over two decades, you have not had one fair election, except, and even the 2016 one was rigged in favor of Hillary Clinton, right? It was, but they couldn't get into hack it, right? To fix it. And we broke the algorithm. Think about it. They had pre-programmed it to siphon votes to Hillary Clinton, and they still failed. Just imagine how many Trump had. Just imagine. So there goes that, right? There goes that. We know that's the problem. So what are we up against right now? We have elections coming up, 2021, 2022, special elections. God, I'm praying for Canada right now. So what do we know? We know that we can't have fair elections. We have Gavin Newsom pissed off and he's trying in every which way. And why? Because we can't prove Dominion fixed it. Well, that's what they say. See, they tried to go to court and they had no standing. They tried, you know, to show evidence of pictures and video. They threw that shit out. Anybody's affidavit that said, I saw this was questioned. Anybody's affidavit, except for mine right? They never touched my affidavit. They touched spiders. They touched everybody else's. They didn't touch mine. Instead, for me, they attacked my character, not my affidavit. That's key. That is key. So, I mean, in war, right? When you're on a battlefield and you've watched, right? (sighs) (laughs) You need to have your situational awareness, as they say. You need to understand what's around you. You need to decide if you're playing checkers or chess. The only way you can win any war is if you know 
the enemy and yourself. I know myself quite well. <laughs> and boy, do I know my enemy. Therefore, that makes people like me extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous to the enemy. And the enemy is the one that seeks control. An enemy is a very broad word. Okay? It's a broad word. Broad word in the sense that there are people that believe they are doing good. But they are still using the tactics of those that are evil. And this is a problem. This is a very big problem. And it has to go down and boils down to ego and fear. Because <clears throat> with many people that I've had conversations when I ask, what is the problem? Why not this? Why not that? They say, because they're scared what you're going to say about them. It's like, um, I don't need to start new wars. We've got a war. I'm going to bother with little things. You know, there's something called redemption. I mean, if you focus on that. So how do we think about this problem? Let's think about it. So the first step to proper thinking is understanding what your problem is. But in order to understand it, you have to know what is true. And right now, the true fact statement is, if we can't prove that Dominion's machines were bunk, we're never going to have another election. That's fair, ever. <laughs> Even the hanging chads ones weren't like 100% either. Those were rigged. But that's another story for another time, okay? Another story for another time. Right now, we got to focus on the now. So, we know this to be true, right? We know this to be true. And the only way we can actually prove it is by having Dominion themselves admit it. <laughs> and you're going to be like, wait, you can't do that. Well, it's called game theory. Again, if you know yourself and you know the enemy, you know exactly where to knock them. Exactly where to knock them. No matter how much proof you show, unless they admit it, right? Unless they admit it, <laughs> you're not going to have shit. But how do you get them to admit it? Don't worry. I was going to say there's an app for that, but I should say there's a filing for that. So the only way that we can actually get them to admit it is by putting them in a box. Period. So I'm going to put a period on that because my lawyer said I shouldn't talk and I shouldn't really, but I can't hold myself back. So instead, I'm going to describe to you things, right? I'm going to describe to you strategies of war, right? Strategies of war. So that way you know that since you know yourself and you know the enemy, you can never succumb to anything. In our life, in our biodome, right? One thing is true. That almost anything that is alive, anything, will engage in some sort of battle. Right now, as you're sitting there, drinking your coffee, your wine, eating your cheese, whatever the hell you're doing. Inside your body, you have a shit ton of organisms battling it out. Defeating opponents and dominating. Bacteria are fighting. Yeast is fighting, right? There's always a constant battle for dominance, right? Constant. It's nonstop. 
It's something that is and always will be. That's fact. And it's always this strive to dominate. And with um, human beings, you see that all the time in business, who succeeds. Uh, you know, when you play chess, checkers, video games, right? Grades, you're always competing and the dominant one comes out. Even when you're clubbing or, you know, uh, streaming or talking, it's like, who's got the most numbers? Who's this? What are the Each and every one of us are constantly at a state of war. It's just like you don't interpret it as such. But in the end, that's the way it is. You're always constantly fighting. Always. You're always battling to be first, <clears throat> last. And this is how you understand tactical and strategic warfare. When you understand that how you act within that situation determines the outcome of the war that you are in or the battle. So, for example, you know, if you know that you are lactose intolerant and you drink milk, you have just lost the battle to the bacteria that you don't have in your gut and you're going to be attached to a toilet. You've lost that battle, right? Done. If, for example, you're up against... Uh, an opponent when running and you're wearing high heels uh, to run a 50 meter race, you've lost that battle because damn, they only run like that in the movies. So how do you determine how to win? It's the way you behave during that battle. There's necessary components of behavior. The person that sits silently in the corner, they say, is always the one that's most threatening. I call bullshit on that, right? Because the best strategy, and I've seen this in, in everything, is to bark, 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 bark all the time. All you do is bark. But you're not doing anything. You're barking. But you're not doing anything they can see. You're barking. And you're doing things. You're collecting information, but you're barking. And they don't see it. They don't see it. And then at some point, they tune out, right? They completely tune out. And then it comes. Suddenly, they've boxed themselves. And that's how you win. Because the one way in order to deter your enemy and to become an army that is so strong is to force the enemy to ignore you. Force the enemy to not look at you. Huh. And also force the enemy to ridicule you. Because the more they ridicule you, the more discredited you are. And the more no one's going to look that way. And the more no one's going to listen. And the more no one's going to pay attention. And you know what benefit that has in war? You see where all the good soldiers shit. Oops. <laughs> you see exactly where they stand. Are they standing on titles and tiaras? Are they standing on truth alone? Or are they standing with the enemy? See, this is how you determine where they are. That's how you do it. You allow, you put yourself out there and you 
are the jester in their court for a while. And then there are moments of clarity where you sit and you convey very important information. And that takes them back. And then they realize, whoop, wait a minute, this is dangerous because I didn't expect that to come from there. And then they draw back again. And then you come back nicely. You drop another little nice nugget. And then they draw back again. (laughs) So then... In the end, usually those soldiers fail. And we've seen that. They fail the battles that you knew they would fail. And you told them that they would fail. And you warned them that they would fail. Therefore, when that bark actually bites, it's not going to sound very nice to their ears, but they will take it if they're on the side of the nation. And so at that point, right, when you're in this war and you have a ton, an army sitting there, all divided because they don't know where truth sits because it's the fog of war. This is an information war. As they sit there and they see that they don't know where it sits and out of nowhere, comes the one person you ridiculed, you silenced, you let hang, you set wayside. Oh, and that person actually comes and saves your ass. That army will look to you and say, which way do we go? And if you steer that army away from the actual war, that army will bury you. See, this is how many battles have been won. This is how toy soldiers fall down. So, again, you can't play a game whose rules you don't know. You can't win a game if you don't know your opponent and yourself. And this is how it goes. So today you're going to see, I think it's important for us, wait, to just show you this. Did you know that, um, I've, I, I think I've mentioned this, and I think um, uh, Patrick Berge actually called this out too. He had told you, and I, I had mentioned it many, many times, I'm a big COD fan, right? But you know who has Call of Duty, right? It's General Jones. Now, I want you to listen to this. The description is, are the heroes in the Call of Duty franchise really war criminals? The Red Cross seems to think so, and they want them tried for crimes. Should they be? Just how guilty are Price, Soap, and Makarov? We're looking at the Geneva Conventions to find out, and I guarantee the answer isn't what you expect. Do you know when Mad Dog Mattis got kicked out of the White House? Do you know where he works now? Call of Duty. Funny how they said that they're war criminals because they totally are. Now watch how they put this together in regards to video games though. Huh? But boy, sometimes things are just stranger than fiction. And that's the truth. Why? Truth has no bounds. This is crazy. Who was? 
soldier. We are Oscar Mike to talk about COD. Intro, ready, go, go, go! Hello, Internet. Welcome to Game Theory, the show that's trying to prove you don't have to have big guns to know a thing or two about first-person shooters. First off, congratulations for clicking on this video. I recognize my target demographic isn't exactly the COD type, after all. <laughs> Trust me, my episode on Halo, awesome though it was, did not launch me into the top tier of gaming celebrity like I expected. It's weird though, isn't it, that such a huge number of people play these FPS games, and yet many of us making and watching game videos just ignore them, or otherwise outright hate them. The fast-talking Aussie, and especially Bob Chipman, the game overthinker, come to mind right away. But they're not the only ones with a distaste for Gunmetal Grey. Last December, the International Council of the Red Cross held an informal meeting to discuss war games like Call of Duty, concerned that, despite all the accuracy these games put into their weapons and alphabet soup of army acronyms, they don't really pay attention to the rules of modern war. In other words, characters are able to perform the equivalent of war crimes in these games, but don't get punished for their actions. If you want an in-depth review of the conference, I recommend watching Seeing Red by old Bobby Chips, which presents a terrific discussion on the topic. In this video, though, we're tallying up the human rights violations committed in the entire Modern Warfare trilogy to see whether the Red Cross is right to condemn these games. To what extent are Price, Soap, Ghost, and Makarov ignoring international policy? And more importantly, do the games show them being realistically punished for their crimes? I guarantee the answer isn't what you expect. So when the Red Cross talks about the rules of war, what are they referring to? Well, real-world war is a lot like risk, with rules dictating everything from how to declare war to how a country properly accepts its enemy's surrender. These laws have three major goals, to limit any unnecessary destruction, to keep wars as short as possible, and to protect people and property not directly involved in the war effort. The Red Cross is particularly interested in the last point. To put it simply, they serve as the ethics board for international conflict, upholding rules set forth by the Geneva Conventions, a series of four treaties drafted in 1949 in response to the atrocities committed in World War II by the Nazis. War crimes, then, are actions like genocide, genocide, serious breaches of these wartime regulations. Instead of just listing these rules out, let's learn through a few examples from the game, shall we? First, in this mission of Modern Warfare 1, you automatically fail if you attack the village church, an accurate representation of the Geneva Convention since religious buildings, museums, and historical landmarks are all protected. Thumbs up, Activision! However, the rest of the civilian objects, like the houses, graveyard, and water tower, would also be protected because they're civilian property that is in no way aiding the war effort. Since blowing them up in the game is not penalized, this would make the Red Cross sad. Also, a few missions later, destroying mosques as a helicopter gunman bears no penalty, making the game's application of the Geneva Conventions inconsistent at best and religiously intolerant at worst. Next, let's play a game I like to call Spot, Spot that, that War Cry! I'm going to play you a scene from Modern Warfare 3. See if you can spot all the war crimes committed. Gas masks on. Oh! 
Not familiar. No, no, please. Where's Makarov? Tell me and it's yours. I'll contact with a man in Volk. Where's this Volk? Paris! He oversaw the delivery in Paris! Right then. This is for the boys at Hereford. Ready for the answers? First. The Geneva Conventions state that there is to be no torture of prisoners. However, in this moment, Price uses the threat of poison gas to get a confession out of the captured Warabi. So, strike one. The use of gas also disregards another document, the Geneva Protocol, which prohibits the use of chemical or biological weapons in warfare because they present overly painful, inhumane ways of death. Remember, we need to use these laws. Pay attention. Yes, even though the poison gas is technically the enemy's, Price should have been the bigger man and not used it. So that's number two. The third and fourth breaches occur at the end of the interrogation. By killing him, Price breaks two major rules. First, soldiers are never allowed to wound an unarmed, surrendered man. Second, by killing him, Price takes justice into his own hands, preventing his victim from receiving a fair trial, and that is not okay. So that's four breaches of international humanitarian law in one scene lasting 20 seconds. Can you imagine how many are in the series as a whole? Well, get ready to find out, because here comes Modern Warfare's Greatest War Crimes. safe to say that in these games, the Geneva Conventions have been thrown right out the window. Whether it's Makarov destroying French phallic symbols or Price becoming a bringer of one-man vigilante justice, no one in this game walks away unscathed. However, the Red Cross's biggest concern was not so much with the actual committing of the crimes, so much as it was with having the characters get punished or reprimanded for breaching wartime protocol. In other words, getting tried for their war crimes. But here's the thing. By not showing any consequences for the American soldiers, the games do accurately portray the end result of their war crimes. Take a look at history. It's called victor's justice, a trend where the winning side of a war gets to judge what was right or wrong in the actions of both its own troops and those of its enemy. In other words, by winning the war, they get the ability to show themselves some favoritism. For example, during the Vietnam War, 26 U.S. troops were tried for taking part in the My Lai Massacre, where 400 to 500 unarmed South Vietnamese civilians, mostly women and children, were found tortured, sexually assaulted, maimed, and murdered. Think no Russian, but worse. Of the 26, one was convicted, originally being sentenced to life in prison. Two days later, President Nixon reduced his sentence to 20 years. It was then reduced to 10. Eventually, he served house arrest for a couple months. 
More recently, you may recall the debates over waterboarding and other quote-unquote enhanced interrogation techniques that the U.S. used post-9-11, despite multiple human rights organizations qualifying these methods as torture, no one was ever tried for their actions. But that's not to say that it's just restricted to the U.S. Wherever there's war crime cases, there's evidence of victors' justice. Just look into the Yugoslav Wars or the genocide in Rwanda as other recent examples. There have been moves to combat victors' justice, however. The International Criminal Court, or ICC, was founded in 2002 in The Hague, Netherlands, as a means of impartially trying cases of genocide, crimes against humanity, and other war crimes. Currently, 120 nations have agreed to abide by the rulings of the court. The United States is not one of them, which means that they don't have to abide by decisions made by the court. Critics of this decision say that it's to ensure that America can continue making its own rules of war, which brings us back to Call of Duty and the Red Cross. Since the U.S. was on the winning side of Call of Duty's World War III, they would get to decide what constituted as war crimes. This means that things like simple property destruction or occupying a church would easily go unnoticed. The No Russian mission would quickly be written off the record. At most, Price could get court-martialed for his vigilante justice, appearing in a military court of his peers rather than an impartial international trial. It's like they always say, History is written by the victor. If the Red Cross really wants an accurate portrayal of the consequences of war crimes, there's an argument to be made that these games provide it. I guess that means that, yeah, Call of Duty may just have something to say about the state of war crime prosecution today. But hey, that's just a theory. A game theory. Thanks for watching. <laughs> So how is that? The creators of, of Call of Duty are actually General Jones. Now stop one second. The ICC has no authority over the United States. This portion of what he stated is erroneous because the minute we hand over our rights as a nation to try crimes to people that we do not elect and have no power to remove, we lose our sovereignty. So let's make that clear. The problem that we have, though, is that we have criminals running our justice system. We have crimes that they are not tried with. And these crimes are massive. Very massive. So let's get into a part one that um, Broken Anthem did, which was incredible. Maybe you guys will understand where we're going with what we've been saying, both Bergie and I. We're not speaking up to violate any codes of clearance no, or to no. uh, give away We're national not giving security the enemy secrets. anything they right. don't already have. In, in right. Fort, no, but you know. the thing is, if they've committed crimes against the people of the United States, mm -hmm. they should be held accountable. Because I do believe that we should have uh, secrets as a mm -hmm. nation and we should uh, you know, hold those tight. Have you heard the story of Reality Winner that supposedly... Yeah. Okay, let me tell you something. I didn't want to say anything to the mom because she's like for her daughter or whatever. But they're mm -hmm. like, she needs to get out. 
she did what was right for her country. You know, she went before captain's mass and to the court and everything and said, I'm so sorry. You're not sorry because what she printed was actually fed information. It was fake Russia propaganda information that they were trying to plant against Trump. They used her right. as, a, as an asset. Exactly. She didn't even know it. I know. And she's so people like people like Jones and Hayden and Brennan with their tools will absolutely find individuals like that and exploit them and laugh all the way to the bank. I know they will. Think of Edward Snowden, right? With his best of intentions, whatever they were, I have no idea. And I think he, what he did was completely wrong. Everything I talk about is literally on a flyer made commercially available by General Jones. That's how I get away with it. Same. But Clearforce, the application, was built by Dynology. And it was built to um, provide compliance to NISPOM. NISPOM being... A compliance, uh, NISPOM being a, a government requirement uh, agent agency that, that people have to do. If you if you have an employee that that has a clearance, they have to you have to meet NISPOM compliance, right? So Snowden releases this information. Jones and Hayden, instead of going out there and maybe fixing the whistleblower laws that would have prevented it happening like it did, they go out and they decide, hey, let's change the NISPOM requirements to have a behavioral, predictive behavioral component to it. Oh, and by the way, we just made this predictive behavioral component that will sell you for a nominal fee that you can use to make compliance. So Snowden thought that he was going to hurt these same people. These are the same people he was exposing. He not only did not hurt them, they started a brand new cottage industry off of it that probably added 10,000 bottles of wine to their wine cellar. See, to be a whistleblower, you have to be an effective one. And to be able to flex your game, you have to do it effectively. Like I said, when I saw Patrick Berge file that IG report years ago, I watched. I was like, damn, he's won separation, so maybe he'll get it, right? I really had faith. <laughs> I was praying hard, but he didn't. And they buried him. The key to being able to whistleblow effectively in an environment that disables you from whistleblowing is to use war tactics, to be smarter than those. But the only way that you can be smarter than them is to use the tools that they have given you and the tools that you know you are going to see used against you. And so aside from having dead man switches, the only way you can usually beat these people is one, having an insane amount of money that worked for President Trump or having an army. Any other way you usually fail unless good is on your side, unless everything you put out is 100% truth. And unfortunately, that fears, that bodes fear into anyone, anyone that has not redeemed themselves in every single 
facet of their former careers. So when you think about it, it's almost entering enclosed enemy terrain, right? So how do you do it? You use spies to gather information, right? When you're in an enclosed territory, you use spies to gather information. Now, this works the same way for them. They're in, they're in what they consider enemy territory. The United States of America, for these enemies of our nation that are actually sitting in the House, White House, and other federal agencies, they're considered on enemy territory. Why? Because it's guarded by the Constitution. And those that are fighting those enemies know that they are enclosed in enclosed territory, right? So what they do is they use, they use spies to gather information, which you've seen, and they spread fake news. And you see it from both sides. And this is where the problem is. Aside from, uh, you know, how you should approach enclosed enemy territory, you should understand that war should never be taken lightly. And in order to defeat the enemy, you have to do it without fighting. You have to be inscrutable. You have to find that still. And the only way to do it is by confusing the enemy and those that will become the enemy. And that is only the business of those that are taking charge in this war. This is how you move it along. So what you have to do is use your intelligence, right, over the tactics that they use. This is how you win battles, but you win wars in a smarter way. In anything we do in life, even when you feel that there is no war, as I've mentioned before, you're constantly at war. And in your daily life, you may not be holding a gun. You may not be killing another, claiming territory, putting out weapons, harassing people, arresting people, whatever, accosting people. But let's just say in sports where you compete, you actually have a war that you are conducting. And you must think to yourself sometimes, how am I conducting that war? that daily war of work to complete, to be top, the exam, this. Think of the strategies that you use. As I've said, you're constantly in a battle. Constantly. It's nonstop. So the question is, how is it that we use this? How do we use this knowledge to our advantage? One, preparation. In order to have a victory, you must, you must understand that victory and defeat in any war have already been decided before the war has actually commenced. That means that if you calculate correctly, if you know how to mm, apply predictive analytics, you understand with 100% certainty what the chances of winning a battle are and which tactics you will use. You have to prepare because you have to know which side is stronger. What are their benefits? 
Who's most likely to win? Who's most likely to flip? Good research is beyond essential. And if you need to employ spies to acquire the necessary information, you do so always. But in all times, we must be very realistic and use, you know, first principles to understand our own strengths and weaknesses and how we can hone in on those. Creating an obedient army like we saw with all these Q decoders is vital for any leader and any, you know, to have soldiers, right? It's, it's important. But obedience goes only so far. Soldiers are not to be mindless order takers. They must know themselves. They must understand the enemy themselves because self-awareness is key here. If you do not have self-awareness, then you do not know thyself. And therefore, you cannot understand the enemies that you need to be running from or running to. That is key. So you have to win by being smart, right? You have to avoid conflict. You can defeat any enemy without even fighting. I mean, sometimes not fighting is not very ideal, right? Because there's a lot of people that get slaughtered when they don't fight. But fighting in the sense of picking up your sword or your gun, that should always be the last, last resort when your life is actually right there to the second threatened. <laughs> but it is also a waste of energy and a waste of resources if you see it that way. You lose your fellow man or woman that's next to you. So the only way to defeat an enemy and do it right is by doing it without shedding one drop of blood. And that is, I mean, it's 2021. We should be always doing that. But the strength of any army is very limited, okay? Um, one may say that the biggest army in the world is undefeatable, but they can run out of equipment very quickly, run out of gas, run out of food, run out of water, vehicles. And of course, they can run out of soldiers to operate those things. Long wars are extremely hard. And this is a long war because it takes a toll on the people, the citizens, the country for resources, and it exhausts people mentally. And this is why the enemy will seek to cause you great discomfort, right? And demoralize you. And you know how you know when you have a bad leader is when the leader raises you up only to crash you down again. So you get these peaks and troughs, which means they don't have control of the war. They just think they do. So the best way to win any war is by striking quickly with minimal use of resources, which means that you use their resources against them. How do you use their resources against them? Let's take a think. Let's think of Dominion. How do we use their resources against them? Obviously, going to court and demanding standing didn't work. Obviously, doing the symposium doesn't work. Obviously, the audits aren't moving things fast enough, right? So how do you destroy an enemy that so far hasn't been able to be penetrated? They haven't been forced to answer for anything. Well, it's very simple. You let them target your generals 
See, in 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 war, it sounds really bad, right? But you've seen that movie before. There's always a front line, right? <laughs> There's always a front line. There is always a front line. And that front line is the one that takes the bullets always, doesn't it? Now, when they get injured, those frontliners can decide to pull back, regroup, and come back again, right? But the way God works, how it works with faith, is that it doesn't want people to regroup and come back. <laughs> it's always going to be the person that they pushed in the back that had the small feet, that couldn't run fast enough, that couldn't keep up with cadence. Maybe they were fat and they were smoking. They were in the back. But they were nestled in the group. And when the generals all took bullets, you know, that person was injured too. But that injury was exactly what they needed. The bullets that they took were exactly what they needed. Now, because when your front line goes down, then your second and your third and your fourth and your fifth, right? They start plowing through them. But the short, fat person in the back that smokes is going to be the last one standing. By then, they've expended ammunition, did all the damage they could, right? And out comes this round thing. And you're just like, wait a minute, where did that come from? Wait, what? without expending any resources, it's done. And you're going to see how that works. Okay. You're going to see how that works. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to love the way this story goes. So this is all you have to do is watch the way war works. So let's go to um, 10 battle tactics. I think it's important for you guys to learn this for the future because you will need this. But for now, I want to show you how this war is going to, I want you to understand how this war will be won with almost hardly any push. Because when your generals, the front line came out and they were shot, all those bullets pierced through to everyone that was behind them, right? It injured all of them. But the one in the back, the one that was outcasted, because you're like, I don't know. I don't like that soldier, but there's something. I don't know. I don't know. It's usually the one that gets the job done, the one that's in the end, right? That's the way it is. And you're going to see how that plays out. I just want you to remember that series we are describing the wars and battles of the past so naturally we decided that some of the tactics used in these battles deserve a longer more in-depth view for now we are going to start with 10 tactics of ancient and medieval warfare that we consider most prominent this video will allow us to gauge the interest and if we get some we are going to produce comprehensive videos for each of these tactics. Let's get it started. The Oblique Order was one of the biggest improvements made in the ancient Greek warfare. Before its implementation, hoplite formation usually fought head-to-head, -head, and the fate of the battle was decided by the number of ranks and the quality of the units fighting. So, first things first, as we see, Head-to-head, head. how good are your soldiers? Let's go, last man standing, right? 
Epaminondas was able to change that forever in the Battle of Leuctra. Epaminondas concentrated most of his troops on the left flank, while his center and right were deliberately weakened, and while his left engaged the right flank of the enemy, his center and right slowly retreated. Theban left easily won against their counterparts, and Spartan army had to retreat. For this tactic to work, weakened part of the army should reject the engagement as long as possible and retreat closer to the concentrated unit to support and protect its flank and rear. This tactic is sometimes called the penetration of the center, and the basic idea is to use your most elite units to create a gap in the enemy army's center. After this gap is created and enemy forces are divided into, reserve should pour in into this gap and exploit it. The first battle of Chironea between the forces of Philip of Macedon and the Greek alliance was won this way. The general who attempts this tactic should know his and enemy units well to conclude which of these units can crush their counterparts and if it fails, the army implementing it can be encircled and crushed, as it will have no more reserves to cover the flanks. This tactic can also be dangerous if the enemy has a reserve force that can close the gap and counterattack. Hidden flank is another variant of the oblique order, but it doesn't demand the concentration of all forces in one place and also doesn't weaken other parts of the formation as much, so they do not have to retreat. Caesar used this tactic during the battle of Pharsalus against the Senate and Pompey. He had hidden a group of infantry behind his cavalry on the right flank, and when Pompeian cavalry on the left flank attacked, Caesar's cavalry supported by the hidden infantry crushed their enemies. This maneuver left Pompey's infantry exposed, and soon it was encircled and had to flee or surrender. For this tactic to work, the center and the right of Caesar had to endure, and they did just that, giving their general one of his biggest victories. This tactic was used by the Carthaginian general Hannibal during the Battle of Cannae in 216 BC. His weakened center retreated slowly under the pressure of the enemies, while his wings moved forward and engaged the Roman cavalry. Hannibal was sure in the superiority of his riders, and they delivered. The Roman center lost any support, was surrounded and crushed. This tactic demands efficient movement, precise implementation, and the presence of elite troops that can overpower their counterparts. Yeah, so this seems close to what's happening right now that you haven't been able to see, but you will soon. The biggest danger of this tactic is the possibility that non-elite units in the center may lose morale and flee the battlefield. The crescent formation is another form of the inverted wedge, and it was used by the winning side during the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. In this battle, Seljuk Sultan al-Arslan positioned his flanks closer to the Byzantines, while his center lagged behind. Byzantine army outnumbered Seljuks and was pressuring it. 
the center of Sultan's army slowly retreated while his wings moved to stretch the opposition. Empress forces were chasing and they slowly lost their cohesion and that allowed mobile Seljuk units to encircle their right flank and then the center. Mobility and good communication were crucial to the success of this tactic. If executed precisely, this tactic leaves enemy chasing and destroys the cohesion between its units and they become easy pickings. The faint retreat is fairly easy to understand in theory, but it was difficult to implement. In the Battle of Pydna, whole Roman army retreated slowly and was chased by the Macedonian phalanx. Roman general used the retreat over the hilly terrain as that broke the cohesion of the Macedonian army. This allowed Romans to mount a swift counterattack that cut slow enemy force lacking maneuverability flat-footed and isolated phalanges were killed or routed. On the other hand, during the Battle of Grunwald, only one flank of the Polish-Lithuanian army retreated, and when the corresponding flank of the Order's army stopped the chase and went after the center of the Allied army, its flank returned and encircled a portion of the Teutons. This tactic is high risk, but also a high reward. Retreating units should be highly trained and organized, have good leaders and efficient communications with other units to pull it off. Hit and run is a variant of a famed retreat, but there are some important distinctions. This tactic was mostly used by the nomadic people or by the forces predominantly consisted of horse archers. The Battle of Kera and Edessa are prime example of its implementation, as in these two engagements big Roman armies were utterly crushed by Parthians and Sassanids. While feigned retreat demanded a continuous withdrawal and then one swift counterattack, hit and run was more nuanced, as there were a number of retreats and counterattacks throughout its implementation. For these tactics to work, army needed to have an assertive mobility and maneuverability to prevent enemy what you're watching is part of what we're doing enemies from catching up and entering the pitched battle small units were moving back and forth and at the time for the enemy with hails of arrows that killed and wounded enemy troops and tired them which eventually made them an even easier target for the horse archers Cantabrian circles and Parthian shock were important elements of the hit and run tactic. Single or double envelopment is a pretty standard tactic that can be considered an element of the oblique formation or a hidden flank, but it was often used outside of these tactical formations. The basic idea was to engage all enemy forces and leave one or more mobile units that will outflank the enemy on one or both sides and will strike behind. This tactic is one demanding patience as the general should wait out his counterpart and not move for envelopment before all of the enemy units are committed to the battle. The one important element of this tactic was rolling up or wrapping up. The enveloping unit would attack enemy unit on the extreme flank and works. break it and will continue doing so. This way, each time more and more freed up units will join in the envelopment attempt and then victory can be completed.
Skill transformation was a direct evolution of the Wicking Shield Wall and Greek Phalanx, and it was implemented by the Scottish armies during the wars of Scottish independence. This tactic demanded the pikemen to be formed in a circular or square formations with pikes defending all the sides. The front lines would kneel and fix their pikes, and those behind them would put theirs above them and these 12-feet weapons would be deadly for the English knights. Skiltrons had their deficiencies as they were easily preyed upon by the missile units, but they also allowed Scotsmen to win many battles. More importantly, Skiltrons were surprised by more complete infantry squares and tercios which dominated the battlefields for centuries. One day I will grow old, will forget my wife's name, my credit card pin, and the password to my favorite porn site. But I will still be able to talk about Roman's Legion triplets. Pay attention to this one. And hours. The Roman formation would be divided into three groups according to their seniority, and that allowed for maneuverability and adaptability. The number of options Roman legionaries were able to execute were numerous. For instance, during the Battle of Zawa, they used what was called maniple channels to allow Carthaginian war elephants to pass through, and after elephants were dealt with, legions formed into one single extended line that allowed them to outflank deeper but narrower forces of Hannibal. Obviously, only the best trained warriors of the world would be able to pull that off. It's possible to talk about Roman armies for days, but let's stop it here. This video is already too long. These were our favorite tactics of ancient and after elephants. So let me walk you through this because the elephants is just perfect. Let me walk you through what you're going to see. As you see, all the great leaders, all the great elite warriors were here. Obviously, they are comprised of many. I'm going to tell you the part that they're not telling you. As you can see, the elephants ran right through, right? Here's where the elephants are running right through. So we let them come in. We let them come in, right? But they were a little bit smarter. They outflanked us because some of the elephants were already in here. They were smart. We got rid of the elephants and then they lined up. And this is where they came after all of them. Now, as you can see, there's a flank. So one broke off. Now, even though this one looks like it's the enveloping stage, we see over here the enveloping. Let me pause it. We see here the enveloping and that to come in and close in. But what you don't see is the cavalry of what's waiting, which is the people. And then the one little box that no one saw, which literally comes in and breaks the ranks and they eat them. This is how it's going to work. You're going to see exactly what I mean by it. Just give it a little bit. You're going to see how someone can come up like a ghost out of freaking nowhere. Kind of like the way Doctor Who's TARDIS would just pop up in the middle of war or something. It just, what? What happened? Whoa, we're right here. So in order to understand that more, we should look at... Um, to understand what their strategy is and how the elephants infiltrated and how we let them come in, right, for these decades that we've been watching and learning. Um, 
we should examine uh, utilitarianism. But before we do that, let's take a quick coffee break. clear that you are now seeing that we are at that brink. And I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let the mainstream media tell you. So I can't talk about it. But I can tell you the best game theorists are the ones that fucking wrote the games. And you're going to I promised, and I've said, for those of you that are Christian, you probably know the story of Lazarus, right? Do you know the significance of him raising Lazarus three days after his burial? Now they say, they they believe, and my cat's talking right now. He really talks. So it was key of this resurrection. Now, resurrection can be seen in many ways, literally raising someone from the dead, resurrecting something that you thought was dead, like, um, you know, a song or um, an initiative or an army or a court case. Resurrecting it to be what it was intended to be 
but it's like completely out of the box. It's like, wait a minute, stop the press. What do you mean? See, it was very impactful because Lazarus was so key. And what did people learn from that? You know, those that study the Bible, why did it appear only in John's gospel, right? Was there a reason that this happened, right? So there's a kind of questions that people that are detectives ask. Why was it only in that gospel, right? Chronological order, maybe? Like, why is it that the Lazarus story kind of makes sense? It's like, you know, you're just like, wait a minute, stop one second. So you actually found that it was... um the Lazarus story was approximately the halfway point of John's 21 chapters. It was chapter 11. 11. So if you're studying the Bible, you, you, you know this. And you may recall that all the, the miracles and, and, and things that were done, right, were in John's gospel. There were like signs, right? And the story of Lazarus is like the final sign, right? The resurrection and the life, right? Bringing life back into it. Because when you go into John 12, it acts like just, you know, talking about other things, final demonstration, what happened, the eternal life. But the Lazarus story was exactly what set the foundations of faith and understanding how to walk in faith. So when you resurrect something, and it's not means that you resurrect someone from the dead, right? Okay. When you resurrect anything, like, you know, it's kind of like, remember when I said, oh, you know, um, March in 2019 of March, I was filing a lot, sending a lot of emails asking the people in Ohio, you know, why this Enron case, you know, never closed. There was open people haven't responded and I asked for that information and they suddenly were like you know what you know right done and suddenly that case was resurrected so like for example you know everyone was like oh my gosh you know Rudy Giuliani uh you know Lindell Powell all of them they're getting sued and then they a counterattack and then they fail right because the judge is like no Dominion can sue you and what was the core of their lawsuits to the courts about Dominion? The fact was Dominion's machines were compromised and therefore our elections were a sham. And this is why they filed those cases. And that notion died completely, right? It died completely with the defamation suits, completely died. So then what do we do? How do we change that? How do we change the defamation suit to resurrect their original? Their original filing is what we want to resurrect. The intention of that filing. My phone is ringing and it won't stop. And someone should know that I don't pick up now and it's far away. So I'm going to let it ring. So again, train of thought right there. If their original suit that was alive came in to claim that they, their machines were the fault of the reason for a faulty election. And that was annihilated, annihilated. And now they lost all their wind. 
Everyone is hopeless. They're crying. There's no way out. No one's looking at the audits. The symposium fell on its face. Like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? You resurrect. And this is where the miracles happen. And why is it important? Because this is how you give faith. Oh, no, no, no. It's not about discovery. They'll never get to discovery. It's about resurrecting the initial cause. Watch it happen and it'll rise from within. This is how you are going to see how that bridge of faith happened at chapter 11. This is how you're going to see it. You're going to see the resurrection of the initial filings. And you're going to say that's impossible because now they're being sued. Everything is a lie in there. Well, not everything. <laughs> I told them. This is, uh -huh. Well, there's always that problem. And the thing about evil is, is that when they feel that they have dominion over everything, <laughs> they like to see that the dominion they have is over property, things, and life. That they're not in any chain, in any universe, way, or form able to command. You're going to watch it resurrect. And this is going to be our Lazarus moment. And I'm going to, you're going to see it. You're going to see that happen. So I've said the only way to battle these people is to be fearless. And the only way you can be fearless is by not going to hit some stormtrooper, right? going straight for the jugular. And this is exactly what he is going to do. You're going to see it. You're going to see it because it's genius. It's like, wait a minute. This is it. They came in, they targeted them. They got bitch slapped in the face by the judge. So justice failed. You have no standing. Dominion comes in. Oh, I'm suing you. And they're like, no, wait a minute. You can't sue me because I'm right. Uh, we're suing you. And then the judge is like, well, you know, if there's facts, you know, we should allow this lawsuit to go. And then people are like, oh my gosh, discovering. It's like, no, that's not it. The first slap in the face huh, was just to humble people, humble them so that the person that they put and cast aside. Wait, wait, uh, there's a quote. Oh, I forget. And you know what? It's even quoted in the Quran too. And there's a version in Dora where they say, when you cast his person aside, he will rise them up higher than anything. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's a, the, it's, it's something like that. I'm paraphrasing now. I, I forget because I get so confused. I know all the scriptures that they have out there. So think, how does that work? Didn't we say, that every weapon forged against good by evil will become a boomerang. You watch that happen. So in the meantime, let's take a look at what um, utilitarianism is. Because we talked about utilitarian totalitarianism. Now let's just look at the one aspect of it. And it's a crash course in philosophy. Let's go.
pretty Kantian in his ethics. Regardless of what Joker does, there are some lines that good people do not cross. And for Batman, killing definitely falls on the wrong side of that line. But let's be real here. Joker is never gonna stop killing. Sure, Batman will have him thrown back in Arkham, but we all know that he's gonna get out. He always gets out, and once he's free, he will kill again, and maim, and terrorize. And when he does, won't a little bit of that be Batman's fault? Batman has been in a position to kill the Joker hundreds of times. He has had the power to save anyone from ever being a victim of the Joker again. If you have the ability to stop a killer and you don't, are you morally pure because you didn't kill? Or are you morally dirty because you refused to do what needs to be done? <laughs> So, why do I describe Batman as Kantian? Well, the school of thought laid out by 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant, now known as Kantianism, is pretty straightforward. More precisely, it's absolute. Kantianism is all about sticking to the moral rule book. There are never any exceptions or any excuses for violating moral rules. And our man Batman tries his hardest to stick to his code, no matter what. But there are other ways of looking at ethics. Like, instead of focusing on the intent behind our behavior, what if we paid more attention to the consequences? One moral theory that does this is utilitarianism. It focuses on the results or consequences of our actions and treats intentions as irrelevant. Good consequences equal good actions in this view. So what's a good consequence? Modern utilitarianism was founded in the 18th century by British philosophers Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, but the theory has philosophical ancestors in ancient Greek thinkers such as Epicurus. All of these guys agreed that actions should be measured in terms of the happiness or pleasure that they produce. After all, they argued happiness is our final end. It's what we do everything else for. Think about it like this. Many things that you do, you do for the sake of something else. You study to get a good grade, you work to get money. But why do you want good grades or money? There are different answers we could give, like maybe we're seeking affirmation for our intelligence or the approval of our parents or a degree that will give us a career that we want. But why do we want that particular career? Why do we want approval? We can keep asking these questions, but ultimately our answer will bottom out in, I want what I want because I think it will make me happy. That's what we all want. It's one of the few things everyone has in common. And utilitarians believe that's what should drive our morality. Like Kant, utilitarians agree that a moral theory should apply equally to everyone, but they thought the way to do that was to ground it in something that's really intuitive. And there's really nothing more basic than the primal desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. So it's often said that utilitarianism is a hedonistic moral theory. This means the good is equal to the pleasant, and we ought morally to pursue pleasure and happiness and work to avoid pain. But utilitarianism is not what you'd call an egoistic theory. Egoism says that everyone ought morally to pursue their own good. In contrast to that, utilitarianism is other-regarding. It says that we should pursue pleasure or happiness not just for ourselves, but for as many sentient beings as possible. To put it formally, we should act always so as to produce the greatest good for the greatest number. This is known as the principle of utility. Okay, so no one's gonna argue with a philosopher 
philosophy that tells them to seek pleasure. But sometimes doing what provides the most pleasure to the most people can mean that you have to take one for the team. It can mean sacrificing your pleasure in order to produce more good overall. Like when it's your birthday and your family says you can choose any restaurant you want. The thing that would make you happiest is Thai food, but you know that that would make the rest of your family miserable. So when you choose Chinese, which is nobody's favorite, but everybody can make do, then you've thought like a utilitarian. You've chosen the action that would produce the most overall happiness for the group, even though it produced less happiness for you than other alternatives would have. The problem is, for the most part, we're all our own biggest fans. We each come preloaded with a bias in favor of our own interests. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Caring about yourself is a good way to promote survival. But where morality is concerned, utilitarians argue, as special as you are, you are no more special than anybody else. So your interests count but no more than anyone else's. Now, you might say you agree with that. I mean, we all like to think of ourselves as being generous and selfless. But even though I'm sure you are a totally nice person, you have to admit that things seem way more important, weightier, higher stakes, when they apply to you rather than to some stranger. So utilitarians suggest that we make our moral decisions from the position of a benevolent disinterested spectator. Rather than thinking about what I should do, they suggest that I consider what I would think if I were advising a group of strangers about what they should do. That way, I have a disposition of goodwill, but I'm not emotionally invested, and I'm a spectator rather than a participant. This approach is far more likely to yield a fair and unbiased judgment about what's really best for the group. Now, to see utilitarianism and put to the test, let's pop over to the thought bubble for some flash philosophy. 20th century British philosopher Bernard Williams offered this thought experiment. Jim is on a botanical expedition in South America when he happens upon a group of 20 indigenous people and a group of soldiers. The whole group of indigenous people is about to be executed for protesting their oppressive regime. For some reason, the leader of the soldiers offers Jim the chance to shoot one of the prisoners since he's a guest in their land. He says that if Jim shoots one of the prisoners, he'll let Jim do. More importantly, what would you do? Williams actually presents this case as a critique of utilitarianism. The theory clearly demands that Jim shoot one man so that 19 will be saved. But Williams argues no moral theory ought to demand the taking of an innocent life. Thinking like a Kantian, Williams argues that it's not Jim's fault that the head soldier is a total dirtbag, and Jim shouldn't have to get literal blood on his hands to try and rectify the situation. So although it sounds pretty simple, utilitarianism is a really demanding moral theory. It says we live in a world where sometimes people do terrible things. And if we're the ones who happen to be there and we can do something to make things better, we must even if that means getting our hands dirty. And if I sit by and watch something bad happen when I could have prevented it, my hands are dirty anyway. So Jim shouldn't think about it as killing one man. That man was dead already because they were all about to be killed. Instead, Jim should think of his decision as doing what it takes to save 19. And Batman needs to kill the Joker already. Thanks, Thought Bubble. Now, if you decide you want to follow utilitarian moral theory, you have options, specifically two of them. When Bentham and Mill first proposed their moral theory, it was in a form now known as act utilitarianism, sometimes called classical utilitarianism. And it says that in any given situation, you should choose the action that produces the greatest good for the greatest number, period. But sometimes the act that will produce the greatest good for the greatest number can seem just wrong. For instance, suppose a surgeon has five patients all waiting for transplants. One needs a heart, another a lung, two are waiting for kidneys, and the last needs a liver. The doctor is pretty sure that these patients will all die before their names come up on the transplant list, and he just so happens to have a neighbor who has no family 
total recluse, not even a very nice guy. The doctor knows that no one would miss the guy if he were to disappear, and by some miracle, the neighbor is a match for all five of the transplant patients. So it seems like, even though this would be a bad day for the neighbor, an act utilitarian should kill the neighbor and give his organs to the five patients. It's the greatest good for the greatest number. Yes, one innocent person dies, but five innocent people are saved. This might seem harsh, but remember that pain is pain regardless of who's experiencing it. So the death of the neighbor would be no worse than the death of any of those patients dying on the transplant list. In fact, it's five times less bad than all five of their deaths. So thought experiments like this one led some utilitarians to come up with another framework for their theory. This one is called rule utilitarianism. This version of the theory says that we ought to live by rules that, in general, are likely to lead to the greatest good for the greatest number. So yes, there are going to be situations where killing an innocent person will lead to the greatest good for the greatest number. But rule utilitarians want us to think long-term and on a larger scale. And overall, a whole society where innocent people are taken off the streets to be harvested for their organs is gonna have a lot less utility than one where you don't have to live in constant fear of that happening to you. So rule utilitarianism allows us to refrain from acts that might maximize utility in the short run and instead follow rules that will maximize utility for the majority of the time. As an owner of human organs, this approach might make sense to you. But I still gotta say, if Batman were a utilitarian of either kind, it wouldn't look very good for the Joker. Today, we learned about utilitarianism. We studied the principle of utility and learned about the difference between act and rule utilitarianism. Next time, we'll take a look at another moral theory, contractarianism. Crash Course Philosophy is... Tom, so what does that tell you? This is what I'm trying to tell you. There's all, it's always about the greater goods. And what they think is that they are the greater good. Now, how do you take down an enemy and an enemy that doesn't know they're an enemy yet? Well, I thought I would give more props to this video game guy because he looked to see the tank's biggest weakness. And this is it. You're up against a tank a tank. So in order to figure out how to take it down, you need to find the weak spot of the tank. Now, everyone says it's the guns. Those of you that have served know that. It's usually to take the guns. But the truth is, you take the tank out from the inside. ...which I've been hinting at for a while because I'm really excited and I think you will be too. Well, after months of working on it with my friends Marcus and Karf, the super secret special project is ready to premiere. This Tuesday, in fact. A new show by yours truly is getting ready to launch. Here's a sneak preview. And after that, later this week is another Game Theory, which is on a game that you all requested a lot and has turned out to be one of my all-time favorite episodes. So tune in all this week and get ready to OD on some MatPat. Now, back to your your regularly scheduled game theory. Well then. Maybe. Got nothing. It's harder than it looks, okay? Hello, Internet. Welcome to Game Theory, Rambo I Ain't. And after 96 episodes of this series, you guys know me. When I'm not thinking way too hard about things like the symbolism of a magical hand creature, I'm acting like the cinema sins for video games, picking them apart for their lack of realism. Oh, you can't actually do a leap of faith to land in hay. Oh, that game says it's about Roman strategy, so let's build a Roman city and see how that works. Oh, sure, these are video game women, but do their boobs behave realistic? 
realistically? No. Like an overeager Mario Jumpman Mario, I bring the hammer down on these gaps in realism, not because I want games to be hyper-realistic, far from it, but because it gives me a chance to teach you guys about the real-life equivalents. And meanwhile, we all laugh at the absurdity of video game logic and Lara Croft's rock-hard rack. But when a game company brags about their product's attention to realism, well then, now you've awakened the beast. You're just asking for trouble. And that's exactly what happened with Gaijin Entertainment, the developers of the World War II tank and plane MMO, War Thunder, who not only bragged about their attention to detail, but proceeded to fly me down to Texas, take me to a tank museum, and challenge me to compare the real-life tanks with their virtual counterparts. You have got to admire those cojones. And let me be clear, just because this was their event, I ensured that I was given free reign to say whatever I wanted to. Like a good researcher, I would never agree to something like this if my results were going to be compromised. In fact, it made me want to be even more critical just to keep my integrity intact. So get ready, because the mission of the day is to put these tanks to the test against their real-life counterparts. Now let's Roll out! Now, in War Thunder's new Steel Generals expansion pack, they added a bunch of American tanks to the game, including the three I got to explore during the Texas trip. The Sherman, the Chaffee, and the Stewart. And the three represent a fascinating cross-section of tank technology. Let's take them out one by one. Them 3 Stewart is a light tank named after the Civil War General Jeb Stewart. Sorry, J.E.B. Stewart. A man who must be single-handedly responsible for the name Jeb coming into existence since no one recognized that they were actually his initials. It's interesting because it's an American tank that joined World War II before America did. Originally, the Stuart was being used by the British until the US showed up and started using them too. But since they were over there so early, the Stuart tank was technically the first American to engage enemies in combat. Now let's look at the tank itself. It's a pretty light tank with a small main cannon, size 37 millimeters, which to give you an idea is about the diameter of your typical watch face. So big enough that you don't want it traveling towards your head, but small by cannon standards. Add to that a couple of machine guns and you have yourself a nice little artillery vehicle, but what made the Stuart valuable was its relatively high speed and maneuverability compared to most of its heavier opponents. Very similar to Oddjob in Goldeneye. Slappers only. Ugh, I hated that well-dressed little man. Eventually, the Stuarts stopped being used for tank versus tank combat and either became reconnaissance machines or they were sent to areas where the tank threat was much less serious, like Japan or the Philippines. And well, yes, it's easy to skin an in-game vehicle to look like a particular tank, and the sound is all dead on since while I was researching the tanks, they were also reported the actual tank's sound effects to use in the game, I'm most interested in the tank's in-game behavior and weaknesses. So, how do you kill this tank? Well, the obvious weakness is the relatively tiny gun and light armor. So, of course, the best counter to a steward is a bigger tank and good aim. I mean, one of the tank experts at the museum said that the best tank strategy in general is have the bigger gun and get ready to run. But seriously, for as indestructible as these things look, almost any other tank can punch right through it, including other stewards. Another crucial weakness for the steward is terrain. Its treads are fairly narrow, so ground pressure is much higher than other tanks in its class. Think of it like a bed of nails. Narrow treads means less distribution of the tank's weight across the ground, which means that travel through mud and snow becomes much tougher as the tank sinks into the ground. And finally, the Stuart runs on what's known as a radial aircraft engine, which requires high-octane fuel and thereby increases the risk of a fire. So how's its virtual counterpart do? Well, War Thunder gets it all exactly right. Pretty much any tank 
tank cannon will either destroy your tank outright or kill the crew inside with a single well-placed shot. The engine placement is exactly where it should be, and some shrapnel headed in its direction will ignite this puppy like a firework. And on the offensive side, shooting the cannon produces little recoil in the tank itself thanks to the smaller caliber gun. In short, just like in real life, the game's equivalent is like the tin foil of the tank world, meant to be used for quick scouting and not head-to-head -head combat. Now, if you want a light vehicle with a little more punch, look no further than the M24 Chaffee, the second tank on my checklist. The Chaffee is named after United States Army General Adna R. Chaffee Jr., a man who played a large part in introducing tanks into the U.S. military. It was specifically designed to be a beefier replacement for the Stuart, and it somewhat succeeded. The armor is about the same quality as the Stuart, which isn't great, but the gun? It's almost exactly double the size of the Stuart's. I feel like there's a penis joke to be inserted there. The problem was, the Chaffee came a little late. Huh, I feel like there's a penis joke in there, too. Chaffees didn't reach Europe until November of 1944, but as you history buffs know, or perhaps more accurately, as you students forced to memorize the dates by your history teacher may recall, the war ended on September 2nd, 1945. That was only a few months later, and as you can imagine, the U.S. Post Office puts huge fees on overnighting 40,000-pound war machines. So by the time these guys reached the fronts, most divisions still just used the Stuart as their standard light tank. The Chaffee saw a little more use in the Korean War, but by then, tanks in general tended to be heavier models. And just like the Stuart, it really just became used for recon. Just like the Stuart, to take this guy out, it was still pretty easy, with almost any tank-caliber cannon in existence. But because this tank is so standard-looking, many of its weak points were actually very easily identifiable by the enemy. Take for So, I want you guys to take this and think, your enemy tanks, history repeating itself, weak points. Just pay attention since the shape of the turret, with its tapered bottom. This was meant to help the Chaffee keep a low profile, but it also perfectly highlights the horizontal turret drive responsible for its ability to rotate. One well-placed shot could totally cripple the tank. Can you imagine trying to aim a tank at something without being able to rotate the turret? That's like trying to turn around in a hallway in the original Resident Evil. Ain't gonna happen. Another weakness is the treads. Where the steward had sprockets that touched the ground, the Chaffees are much higher up on the body and therefore much easier to hit at a distance. That, in turn, made it much easier to detread the tank. That said, it was still pretty tough to get close to this guy if you were on foot, because the treads were wider, the machine guns it packed were even scarier, and the low profile made it easier to spot enemies from farther off. Not that I'd ever recommend taking on a tank on your own in any situation at all, but with the Chaffee, smoke bombs are going to be your best friend. And once you were able to get close, I'd recommend trying something like that neat sticky bomb trick that they used in Saving Private Ryan. Spoilers, I guess? I can already feel you typing. It has been over 15 years, my friends. Tom Hanks dies, Matt Damon lives, and Vin Diesel's insistence on living his life a quarter mile at a time. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Doesn't get him too far. But back to the world of video games. In War Thunder, the Chaffee is used similarly to the Stuart, but it feels a little more tanky. It's a little slower, but the heavier gun makes it more threatening. And while the armor is about the same rating between the two, which is historically correct, the Chaffee's design makes it more likely to survive survive a hit or two. That said, targeting the area where the turret meets the tank body is totally an effective way to take it down. And unlike many of the other tank treads in the game, this guy's feels particularly vulnerable. So yeah, once again, very historically accurate. It takes real skill to use this guy. So overall, Gaijin no Goomba Entertainment had reason to be confident in the fidelity of their game. Its fidelity is high. One might say, high fidelity. High fidelity. No one? Year 2000 comedy with John Cusack and Jack Black? 
Okay, that's fine. I'll take my film jokes elsewhere. The last tank I researched was the M4 Sherman, who you may remember from such wars as the Second World War and the movie Fury. Believe me, this dude is the one you think of when you imagine the stereotypical tank. The Sherman is a beast compared to the other two guys. Named after General William Tecumseh Sherman, when this tank first burst onto the scene, it outclassed almost every German tank it came across. True, it was only a few years later when the German Panthers and Tigers began outperforming it, but by then, the Sherman was so easy to produce, just being good enough was fine. America's tank strategy became quantity over quality. When speaking about firepower, the Sherman had the same caliber gun as the Chaffee, but with much heavier armor. You guys can rest easy, foot class. Yeah. Sounds like the fake news, doesn't it? Quantity over quality. Whirlwind speed and brutality, the Sherman was much more focused on tank-to-tank -tank combat, and because it had a gyroscopic stabilizer built into the turret, it could actually fire somewhat accurately while in motion, something practically unheard of in a lot of these other tank models. So you want to kill this guy? Other than just being a bigger tank with a bigger gun like a German Tiger or Panther, anything that could conceivably catch the tank on fire was going to be your best bet. From a Molotov cocktail to a phosphorus round, Shermans were extremely prone to catch fire to the point that British soldiers began referring to it as the Ronson in reference to a brand of lighter at the time whose slogan was lights first every time that's brutal leave it to the British to keep burning to death in a flaming metal tub super classy other strategic disadvantages it's fairly tall and much of the heavy armor plating depends on where the tank is hit and at what angle in short if you're playing war thunder the Sherman is your basic entry-level medium tank it's like choosing Mario and Smash Bros it's heavy enough for a beginner to take a few hits, and powerful enough that a skilled player could take down a slightly more powerful tank with some measure of confidence. And that is really it. You know, my original plan for this video was to point out all the glaring inconsistencies between the tanks in the game and the tanks in real life, but the dev team is so darn dedicated and accurate that I, I just can't do that. So much of this game is just too accurate, to the point that the game data and the real world data were almost indistinguishable. It really soured my grapes. But oh, loyal theorists, I haven't forsaken thee. Because even with all their attention to detail, Gaijin Entertainment did miss one very significant detail when it comes to driving tanks around the battlefield. Oh. In fact, they failed to include a tank's biggest weakness of all. The tank's own worst enemy is itself. Malfunctions. There we go. Malfunctioning tanks were a major problem, especially for the Sherman, with as many as 30 to 50% breaking down on their way to the field, or even worse, while on the front. That's the last thing you need in a heavy artillery battle. And if you stop to think about what I told you earlier about the Shermans, you can start to see why this failure rate was so high. The US strategy was mass producing these things. Of course it's gonna be sloppier and corners are gonna get cut. For all the brilliance of German engineering, it took Germany so long to fix their beautifully designed masterpiece tanks that the U.S. would just build more Shermans and overwhelm them with sheer numbers. And Gaijin Entertainment, in their quest to create a truly realistic tank... Hold on, did you hear that? We created, right, weapons supposedly to outnumber, do you see? But in that creation of creating all these fake personas, fake attacks, fake news, the quality lacks... Therefore, you can destroy it from within. Tank game experience failed to include that critical design flaw. Ha <laughs> ha, I gotcha. Actually, 
I didn't. The problem with tanks breaking down was so prevalent, and the dev team's commitment to realism was so high, that they seriously considered adding a randomized failure mechanic into the game. Imagine spawning onto the battlefield only to have your tank sit there like a rock, for no apparent reason, just because it was a lemon coming off the shelves. Obviously, you can see why their attention to detail stopped at that point. It's fascinating. Even the most realistic video game with a dev team who is super committed to realistic fidelity has their limits. In order for a video game to truly stay fun, seems like there are limits to how much realism you can work in. But hey, that's just a theory. A game theory. Thanks for watching. So, what did we learn from that game theory? One, we're now well versed in different tanks and all their weaknesses and when they came up and how they got their names. But two, what you have to realize is no matter how big, big the tank is, right? And this tank, this machine that is against all of us is massive. The weakness is in its creation. And you are going to witness how from within it is resurrected and it, we turn this shit inside out. And unfortunately, it almost took a year full circle to go back to the beginning. You never fight a war that's not your turf. You never fight a war that you have no handle on. Fight a war when you have it all. And you're going to see that come to fruition. Uh, I have been asking for tons of prayers because we need good lawyers. We need, I cannot explain it further. It's going to be fun. Now, to end this, I thought that we would take a hint as to um, how this tank is going to crumble. Now, this isn't the case. Because remember, we said Lazarus. Representative taking on two media outlets all the way to court. Congressman Devin Nunes filing defamation suits against NBC Universal and the Washington Post after they accused him of colluding with a Russian agent to get President Donald Trump elected back in 2016. Congressman Devin Nunes joins us live now to discuss. He's also the author of this book. It is called Countdown to Socialism. There again on your screen. Congressman, good to see you. Thanks for, for, for getting to us. I mean, there's so much news of the day to get to, but I've got to ask you, and, and I, I know that uh, lawsuits have uh, certain things you can and cannot say, but what is happening with, with your suits? Last I heard, you believe the post would be deposed. Have you heard anything on your suit with NBC Universal? Well, look, this was a, a big stride for transparency and to hold the fake news accountable. What happened in court a couple of days ago in Washington, D.C., this is the first time, at least in modern history, that a member of Congress, city member of Congress, will be able to advance against the Washington Post. And look, they've had a group of reporters over there who continue to promote the Russia hoax. And as, of course, I was chairman of the Intelligence Committee, still the top Republican on the Intelligence Committee. We said from the very beginning that, that this smelled and there was nothing here. But yet they continue to promote this. They continue to attack uh, me and my staff. So what it culminated with last year, uh, they did a fake news story on one of my former staff and they resurrected stuff from four years ago that was never true that, you know, I had, you know, James Bond style jump, rolled out of cars, jumped over the fence at the White House at midnight and, and stole some intelligence reports that then I leaked out to the president of the United States of all things, if you can, if you can imagine. So they knew from prior reporting that that was totally false. 
it was. There was never any midnight run or jumping over the fence. It was all actually just trying to figure out um, unmaskings and you know how was General Flynn's conversation leaked out? Uh, how was President Trump's conversations leaked out? Uh, and then, of course, other intelligence reports that, that we viewed uh, as highly problematic of targeting American citizens had nothing to do with the wiretap of Trump Tower that I had said at the time didn't happen. We weren't even we weren't even looking at that. I had said several times that that was the case. So, look, uh, they acted with with actual malice. Uh, they've been doing it for years. Uh, thankfully, a judge saw that. So now uh, if The Washington Post has any evidence, which I know they don't. Uh, but I look forward to deposing uh, these cast of characters that have uh, been after me for a long time and try to hold them accountable. Also, um, if I understand this correctly, it's Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC that was of issue. Is that correct? Yeah, so that one's just completely bizarre. Uh, this, uh, about three months ago or so, four months ago, uh, she uh, got up on the wrong side of the bed and just decided to accuse me of treason, obstruction of justice, uh, completely bizarre because there were multiple reports uh, about this. You know, we were actually, it was the House Republicans that were conducting a counterintelligence investigation uh, into various Russians and Ukrainians and things were going on. We were the ones that actually tipped off the Department of Justice and the FBI. So, uh, you know, a year or so later, she can, earlier this year, out of nowhere, uh, she accuses me of, of, you know, during dirty things with Ukrainians and Russians, just more of the same crap, you know, just more of the same nonsense that, you know, Republicans are somehow tied to Putin. Uh, and it's completely uh, outlandish. Uh, it's it's actually the opposite was true. We have no idea who her sources were. But yeah, she just teed off on me on national news. They tweeted it out multiple times, put it on all of their uh, different uh, media outlets. And look, at the end of the day, what's the problem with this? The problem is that people believe that poison. And it puts me, it puts my staff, it puts my family all at risk because you have millions of Americans running around that, you know, believe that I'm doing something, you know, I'm, I'm committing treason and, you know, cooperating with Russians. It's just wrong. So uh, that has been filed. Uh, we look forward to getting before the judge. Uh, they have, I think, a few weeks uh, to respond to my complaint and we'll see what happens. But uh, look, the same thing is true. Uh, I am going to continue to hold the fake news accountable and they may not like it, but, you know, the level of of the way that civil discourse in this country is going down the tubes is precisely because we have fake news in this country uh, that are that are actually just destroying people's lives. And, and I'm fighting back against it. You just watch. Huh. Defamation. Slander. Libel. Oh, shit is about to go fun. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to be able to put this together this weekend, probably late next week, considering all. But what if I, I'm going to expose to you a criminal informant of an attorney general may have committed murder. The murder weapon may also have been implicated in a murder six days later, was caught with drugs. And all of that went away because the criminal informant has a lot of information. And the last thing the attorney general wants is for that account to go. Oh, dear. Yes. Wait till you we're going to make that little criminal informant. Very, very famous. Yes. And it is from North Dakota. You just watch. Now, all the stuff that I told you to pull out and dredge all that, you know, garbage that they had on me was very important. You assisted the lawyers, you assisted me, but also you assisted 
in helping me take down a big swamp creature. So thank you. And I am going to tell you that <laughs> before we even get to that point, um, I'm a person that agrees completely with Devin Nunez. People just accept whatever narrative is there. They just do things and they trash you and they think they can get away with it. Well, not in our America. And you're going to see that change. But first, we must resurrect, right? That's key. Because, you know, I hear that class action suits are very effective. But suits that derive from within, whoa, whoa. Now, those are bombshells. I don't know how you can recover from that one. I mean, using their own words against them kind of hurts. You know, you have to decide. Do you drop it and provide standing? <laughs> or do you go head on and open up Pandora's box that you didn't even know was already open? I hope J-O-B is polishing those shoes because I think they have, what, 21 days to respond? So that would be like the beginning of September, right after Labor Day, if the timing goes well, which would be quite fascinating. Um, and we're going to see things being resurrected. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't know how some people just love being attention whores. I can't stand it. I hate having to go out and being concerned for my well-being, being concerned that someone can see me and 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 post things, having been harassed for so many years by government officials, by individuals that don't even know me. It's like, who are you and why are you talking about me? Do you know me? No, go away. It hurts. It hurts. But you know what? I'm now completely numb to that. So bring it, bitches, because you're gonna have to <laughs> you're gonna have to reweaponize the same old shit again and again and again. Half the country fell asleep, but they scream woke. We're distracted by vaccines and TV shows, politics, celebrity gossip, popular neat quotes, black lives, white lives. Which lives mean most? We only dedicate one day to remember our fallen soldiers, the men and women who died young. But if you come out the closet as Caitlyn Jenner, you're a hero and you get a whole pride month. The most dangerous pandemic's propaganda from these clowns. Only masks is gonna save us is duct tape on their mouths. Don't speak.